All right, we are back in our final segment. We will continue and finish our talk with St. John Hunt, son of Watergate burglar E. Howard Hunt, and Mother Dorothy Hunt, an espionage agent in her own right. St. John, I guess I want to say, these revelations from your dad uh, to you are judged credible and highly significant by the JFK research community. Uh, by your own admission, sadly, he only told a portion of what he knew. And uh, I, guess that, I, I guess more than even the rest of us, that really must frustrate you. Well, it does. I was able to spend such little time with him. I mean, I, I uh, you know, I just had a, a, a normal job. I didn't have a lot of money to fly around. I could only visit him two weeks out of the year. Sometimes it would be two years before I could see him. And his health would go down and go back up and go down and back up. And, and of course, once Laura and his second set of children got wind that we were talking about things like this, they were around all the time and barely left us, you know, an hour a day alone. Right. It, it was just really, really hard. Uh, we brought him to the Holiday Inn to, to do the, uh, to, you know, to continue this, where we thought we could be by ourselves. And who shows up? Two kids. Oh, we wanted to see what you guys were doing. <laughs> I, I should note, your father explained to you that his new family was told by him, no, I, look, I had nothing to do with any of that stuff. That's all a bunch of scandals. So when he was opening up to you and you were having a dialogue about it, he had a, quite a conflict between, well, how do I talk to you when the rest of the family wants, wants none of this to, to go forward? Right, because they didn't believe he had anything to do with any of it. And the sad thing about it is that uh, Laura was a, a wonderful wife and supportive person for him and, and raised two wonderful kids, but was such a naive, uh, innocent in many ways, a Georgia school teacher, that uh, she had told my father that she would not marry him if he had anything to do with any assassination of any person, murder of anybody. And my father swore to her that he didn't. Mm. And, and she even took him back when his affairs were exposed to her. And, um, and she was just a really giving person, but she did not believe that the CIA would support any kind of assassination of anybody. I just kept trying to say, look, this is not about your life or the two other children. This is what I went through in my life. And this is what my father wants me to do for him. And even though he won't admit it to you to your face, you know, this is what he's telling me. And it was very difficult, really tricky. Plus, Bill Snyder pops up again and is preventing my dad from uh, speaking to me, uh, saying that, uh, well, Howard, uh, there might be indictments coming down for, uh, for this crime here. And he's like, what crime? Well, there's no statute of limitations on prior knowledge of a presidential assassination. And you've lied to the Senate twice about your having no prior knowledge of it. And now here you're going to go and write a book with your son and uh, this Eric Hamburg guy and, and, and tell all this stuff? Because uh, you're, you're going to be in, in prison for the rest of your life, which may not be long anyways. And uh, my father wrote me a letter. He just said, I, I can't fight this battle anymore. I'm too old. I'm too weak. Thank you so much for believing in me and coming down all the times you have. And uh, I uh, went down the last time, and uh, when they took him to the hospital for the final time, uh, I, I had a raging argument with Laura because I said, just please let him die in his own home, in his own bed with us around him. Don't put him through the agony at the hospital. They're poking with needles and all that stuff, and I, he, just, he would just moan in pain and just let him be. And she goes, I can't, I can't live with myself if he could be saved. Yeah, I understand. And that was a really sad scene. But I saw him the day before he died, and his grip was strong. His eyes were clear. And he was so glad I was there with him. And uh, during our few talks uh, over the years, he, he told me that he had always known in his heart that his wife, Dorothy, my mother, had been murdered. But that uh, he was in prison, and uh, the, the next threat he felt was to his children. He goes, I was in prison, your mother was dead, I couldn't protect 
you children, and I, I really just didn't know what else to do. And, of course, four days after she was killed, he pled guilty to all charges, and that was the end of that story. Wow. I don't want to do one final aside, St. John, but before yeah. we close up here, uh, David Talbot is going to appear on the show in the near future. We enjoy his book very much about Alan Dulles. He notes that your dad was, among other things, a protege of Mr. Dulles, and while he certainly agrees with you on Bill Harvey being a key player in organizing the operation and David Phillips, etc., He's written a whole book noting that it's rather more likely that Dulles was near the top of the conspiracy rather than LBJ, as your dad outlined. I just want to ask you about any thoughts you might have about Dulles. Uh, your father did help uh, help him with his writings, and I wonder, you know, uh, about anything he may have said about Dulles. Uh, he ghost wrote the book uh, Craft of Intelligence for Alan Dulles. Um, and um, as far as Dulles being at the top of the chain, that's... that's uh, Dulles played uh, roles behind the lines. I mean, he was involved in everything with the uh, the Harrimans and uh, illegal banking, supplying the Nazis with, with money in the in World War II, and so on and so forth. But um, Dulles would not have been president of the United States. They needed the, the, the next top man, the most powerful person in the world, to be on board with the assassination. And that man was not Alan Dulles. I'm sorry. It just wasn't. Not, not by 1963, Alan Dulles was not a concern of, of JFK, but Johnson realized that uh, he would uh, be a good name to put on the Warren, Warren Commission, and he hated Kennedy for uh, firing him and uh, many other top CIA people over the uh, you know, Cuban uh, situation and the operations of assassination attempts and all that. And uh, Dulles, I'm sure, was very happy to be in the Warren Commission, but... Getting Dulles' approval for the assassination was not necessary. It just wasn't. Well, certainly the debate goes on about LBJ's role in this, and we could do a whole probably hour about LBJ. But, you know, your dad said what he said, and it certainly has to be, you know, accepted as as having a lot of truth to it. Although, it's funny, I just, I've got Tad Schultz's book about your dad, Compulsive Spy, and you mentioned the fact that he really, your dad really wrote The Cult of Intelligence. In the beginning of the book, Schultz is talking about how much he learned about your dad by reading that book. And it just strikes me now, in speaking to you, I wonder if, if he knew that, you know, it really was your dad that had written it. I guess we don't know the answer to that. I have that book. I'm actually, I can see it right in my room here. I don't know if Schultz knew um, that uh, Papa had written A Cult of Intelligence. He said he learned a lot by reading your dad's spy novels. I have one of those, too, by the way, and I've started at St. John. And, you know, it, it's, it's starting out to be a pretty good yarn. I haven't finished it yet, but I can see why he sold a lot of books. What's the name of the book? One of our agents is missing, I think, something. Is missing. He wrote it under the pseudonym of David St. John. Yes. Yes, he did. Yeah, after my brother and me. Uh, yeah, he wrote seven David St. John uh, pseudonymed uh, books, and those are the ones that Helms, Dick Helms liked the most. As a matter of fact, he kept a stack of them, multiple copies, in his office at CIA, and he would hand them out to people he had meetings with. He was uh, working with the, um, a national uh, uh, television uh, syndication to bring story of these um, David St. John novels and other things my father wrote as a television series for my dad. That's how much good personal friends they were. Wow. Wow. Well, it's, it's, I'm just starting to read it, and it's like he's describing going to meetings with people higher up at CIA, and you can just see where he's taking his real-life exploits and putting them and fictionalizing them. Thin, thinly fictionalized at that, it seems. Yeah, but, you know, none of the David St. John books are serious books. They're like Ian Fleming. They're like... Um, they're salacious, they're sexual, they deal with occult. Not, not that one that you mentioned, but uh, other titles were uh, The Coven, uh, Diabolus, and those things. But one of his best and most serious books, which my mother convinced him to change the ending on the way to the airport, 
when she left and crashed, was the Berlin ending. And that's one of my dad's proudest books because, you know, he put a lot of time into that. It's, it's a serious spy novel. It's not a, a piece of pulp. Okay. Fiction. The Berlin ending. But if you want to get an autographed copy of Dorothy or Bond of Secrecy, you can go to stjohnhunt.net, and that's spelled S-A-I-N-T-J-O-H-N-H-U-N-T, stjohnhunt.net. It's got great family photos of my father and my mother and us kids growing up. It's got uh, the two books of mine that are available. And it also uh, I also carry some of my father's first edition books for collectors who are interested in buying. It's also got a, uh, many of my music videos, which I've, I've written and, and done over the years. And prior interviews, my talks at the JFK conference in November. Last year in the November before that, a lecture I did in San Francisco. And um, conspiracy theory on True TV. With Jesse Ventura, he wrote the foreword to my first book, Bond of Secrecy. Oh, yes. Jesse Ventura features you prominently in his writings as well. So, I, again, again, you're, you're, this, you've made a significant contribution to the case with both these books, and we, we recommend them highly to listeners. And uh, One thing I do want to do uh, as we close here is, is, is uh, plug... An excellent website. We talk about some of the players in this case and how convoluted it is, which is very convoluted. There's a Spartacus educational site run by John Simpkin, which is excellent for being able to pick up a thread and seeing how people relate. And I just want to want to plug that for the audience. So I had the honor to meet and sit with Peter Dale Scott last November, Barb McClellan, uh, also Robert Groden, and Ed Tatrum, who's really responsible for a lot of the information that's come out in the last 20 years about the assassination. These guys have, have welcomed me, made me feel a, a part of their clan, supported me, and uh, just been so generous with their time and their support. I, I couldn't have asked for a better thing to happen because I was a little nervous, of course. Uh, I haven't you know, devoted my life to this. I haven't poured 5,000 hours uh, sitting looking at documents. Uh, I'm speaking about it from a completely different point of view than they are. But um, but they're very nice guys. They're they're gracious. And they're so knowledgeable, and they've just really taken me in completely. I just want to thank uh, all those guys, all the researchers that have developed the years and years of research to get this, this stuff out. In closing, I just want to note for our audience that your mother and father were unusually talented people. Your mom was a secretary for Avril Harriman. She spoke four languages. Your dad, of course, writer, musician, spy. Uh, they got involved in things that changed history for better or worse, as you outline. Whatever else they were or did, they were your parents. And I guess uh, the final thing I just want to ask is, are you more at peace with their memories after you've struggled to put their story as you know it before the public? Yes. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a, uh, a huge task for me to undertake. A, not so much the bond of secrecy, although that was the end of the family uh, my, with my father's death and all that. And, of course, they outcast me as soon as uh, he passed away, and they, they found out that I was going to write Bond of Secrecy. Uh, they never spoken to me again, ever, not my sisters. My brother and David and I are still close. But uh, Dorothy was really um, uh, monumental in terms of uh, going through, you know, because it, while I was writing it, it felt like she was alive again in me, more so than normal. And then as, as I got closer to her death in the book and finally writing the words that, you know, she was dead, it just was really hard, but it has been liberating, very much so. And, of course, I've talked about it now quite often, and and it's it's been a big help. And I just wanted to put that out as, as a legacy of what the intelligence people, CIA, whatever, NSA, can 
have an effect on a family and their children and their lives and they how they have to deal with it or not deal with it, as is in some cases. I feel that uh, I lost my way for 25 years and uh, uh, came out of it, and um, I'm a better person for it. And uh, I love my mother and my father. I never had any resentment to my dad uh, and blamed him for my, my mother's death, although... <laughs> You know, he was uh, he was the big reason that she was on that plane. Sure. But I never blamed him for it because that was his world and his life. And you know, she wouldn't have done it if she didn't really still love my dad. And she did. And and that's just history. That's just how my life went. And I, I grew up with these people, my parents, and uh, I learned a lot from them. We've been speaking about Bond of Secrecy, my life with CIA spy and Watergate conspirator E. Howard Hunt, and. Dorothy, an immoral and dangerous woman, the murder of E. Howard Hunt's wife, Watergate's darkest secret, both by St. John Hunt, who's given us the last hour of his time. We're very grateful for that. Hope we can probably have you on again. I'd love to. Doug, thank you so much, and thank all your listeners and supporters for, uh, for keeping uh, Truth Radio, Radio Parallax, uh, continuing. Very good, sir. to say as we get near the end of the program that it is such a great pleasure to be able to interview guests like this. We're so pleased to have been able to do this for the past 13 plus years. In the very few minutes we have left on today's program, we have a choice of doing something whimsical and historical or reviewing some more items in the news. I'm going to opt for the former today. We've been making an effort to look back at some historical events and give a fresh perspective on them. So let's take a look back using the book Unsolved Mysteries of American History by Paul Aaron and address chapter 14. How did Davy Crockett die? To quote from the piece, to the millions of Americans who remember Fess Parker and ABC's 1954 Davy Crockett Indian Fighter series or John Wayne in the 1960 movie The Alamo, the answer to this question is no mystery. Davy died fighting at the Alamo along with all its other defenders. In the television version, he's last seen swinging his rifle like a club with the bodies of the Mexicans he has slain at his feet. In the movie version, he is, if anything, more heroic, blowing up the fort's powder magazine to make sure a score of Mexicans die with him. This really caught me up short, because although I was quite familiar as a boy with the Walt Disney version, with Fess Parker as Davy Crockett, I never saw the dreadful 1960 movie. And yes, I'm old enough to remember it coming out. And both my parents and their wisdom thinking that was a bad idea, going to see that movie. I do have to thank them for that. But really, but what really strikes me is that in an era of suicide bombers, loathed by all, we have Davy Crockett blowing himself up, a suicide bomber in the Alamo? This does not seem right. But to continue the narration from Mr. Aaron's book, so clear was this image in Americans' minds that when historian Dan Kilgore presented evidence in 1978 that Crockett surrendered at the Alamo and was executed after the battle, Kilgore was branded un-American. But his evidence was not new, nor were Hollywood's versions the first fictionalized accounts of Crockett's life and death. Crockett himself was famous as a teller of tall tales, and historians attempting to uncover the truth about his death had to first peel away many layers of legend, lies, and half-truths. And by the way, one half-truth about the Alamo, which we've brought up in this program on more than one occasion in the past, is that the reason the Mexican government was taking a dim view of these settlers, these American settlers in their state of Texas, 
was that the Texans insisted on bringing their slaves with them, and Mexico had banned slavery. It seems to get left out quite often. Now, regrettably, we don't have enough time <laughs> at the end of the show here to go into this story in great detail. But the fact of the matter is, on the American side, the witnesses were dead. That doesn't mean there weren't plenty of witnesses on the Mexican side. There were. The book notes that in 1975, Carmen Perry translated into English the narrative of Jose Enrique de la Peña, an aide to General Santa Ana and an eyewitness to Crockett's death. According to de la Peña, Crockett most definitely did not go down fighting. He was captured along with six others and brought before Santa Ana. Drawing on his famous ability to tell tales, he attempted to talk his way out of his situation. He claimed he'd merely been exploring the country around the Alamo when he heard of the Mexican advance. Then, quote, Fearing that his status as a foreigner might not be respected, unquote, he'd sought refuge in the Alamo. Santa Ana didn't buy it. He ordered Crockett and the others killed, and his officers, though not the horrified de la Peña, quote, fell upon these unfortunate defenseless men just as a tiger leaps upon his prey, unquote. Now, it turns out there were several other Mexican witnesses who offered briefer but similar versions of Davy Crockett's death. And in fact, back in 1836, many U.S. newspapers reported his surrender, as did many 19th and early 20th century historians. We do want to note as we close that Crockett's surrender should not be confused with cowardice. Notes the author faced with insurmountable odds, Crockett made the only reasonable choice. De La Pena's account of the execution concludes by telling how these unfortunates died without complaining and without humiliating themselves before their torturers. Or to put it another way, Davy Crockett, well, did die like a hero. That just about does it for today's program. I just want to add the briefest of brief obituaries in noting the passing of David Bowie. This correspondent is, is somewhat surprised by the outpouring of affection from the public for this artist. Since we've been talking throughout most of the show about some famous individuals and semi-famous individuals, I think we'll go out with David Bowie's fame if Mr. McMillan could put his hands on it. That would be Edward McMillan, the producer of this show and all of them. It should be noted that he edited this program somewhere east of Puerto Rico. I recommend if you ever find yourself east of Puerto Rico, you might want to try your hand at editing. I'm Douglas Everett. This has been Radio Parallax, and our thanks one final time to St. John Hunt for his most interesting conversation about his dad. We'll see you next week.